you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. Our guest today is a poultry farmer, but not the kind of poultry farmer you might be used to. Sarah Jackson is the owner of Uplands Pheasantry. She sells game birds and eggs in Lambton County, along with her mother and her two-year-old Scarlett. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you guys today? Well, pretty good. We were just trying to get a bit of a handle on the, the geography of Lambton County. Tell us kind of where you're located. So I am in Plimpton, Wyoming, just outside of Sarnia, very close to the lake. Wyoming Township as opposed to like Wyoming, Wyoming. Yes. So Plimpton, Wyoming is how far from Detroit? A couple hours. That's probably a safe distance then. <laughs> yes. You got you a river and a border between you and Detroit. Exactly. Very good. So Sarah, did you grow up on a farm? I did. I uh, was very, very lucky that uh, my parents farmed and uh, my grandparents farmed and I'm uh, still living here on the same farm and I'm never going to move. <laughs> and you're close to Ridgetown, right? Uh, just about an hour. So that's where I went to college. That's where my parents went to college. A lot of family went to college at Ridgetown. And Ridgetown College, for people that don't know, is connected with the University of Guelph and would be one of the, the main ag schools here in Ontario. Yes, exactly. And so tell us one of your favorite Ridgetown memories. You were a Ridgetown Aggie. Tell us what your highlights would be. Oh, my goodness. There's so many highlights between uh, Spring Expo and we had some amazing, amazing instructors that, you know, you really learned a lot from. Um, Dr. Dave Hooker was one that I still look back on some of the classes and he just really wanted you to learn and was so enthusiastic. It was an amazing experience to go there. Well, that was very well said, almost like you're a spokesperson for Ridgetown. What I really wanted to know is I wanted to hear about drinking and square dancing. Oh my gosh, uh, I don't think I ever square danced because I have two left feet, but the drinking thing, yeah, I think I uh, I think I did a pretty good job at that, yep. <laughs> All right. How long ago did you go to Ridgetown? Uh, I graduated in 2013, I believe. Right, so you're, you're out a few years now. Did you go right back home to the farm? I did, I did. Um, actually, when I was finishing up my last year at Ridgetown, we were um, busy building the new hatchery and everything back here at the farm. So I spent a lot of time driving back and forth and back and forth just because I really wanted to be involved with, I guess, what I was going to be farming with for the next, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years. A lot of driving back and forth, but definitely worth it. And did, do you have brothers and sisters? No, I'm an only child. Oh, so there's nobody, you don't have a brother to take over the farm someday. <laughs> no, 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 just me. No, I know. I baited you with that one. And we're going to we're gonna talk about that a bit later, some of the stereotypes. Tell us a little about the farm. Like, so it was a game bird farm when you were a kid as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, we didn't have nearly as many birds as we do now. But we have, uh, in the past five years, purchased a existing operation out of Elmer, rebuilt everything back at our farm here in Kamlaki. Um, so we ship day-olds all over Canada. We do also ship into the U.S. a little bit. Let's, Just, let's start with the basics. What kind of birds have you got? So pheasants, eastern wild turkeys, 
partridge, and quail. Okay, now explain to me the difference between a pheasant, a partridge, and a wild quail. Pheasants are a little larger bird. Um, partridge aren't necessarily native to this area, but they go to a lot of different game farms and are used for dog training. They're also really, we're seeing a very large increase in the demand for them in the restaurant trade. Very sweet meat, a little bit bigger than a quail. And then we do have meat quail, so caternix, and we also have uh, northern bobwhite quail. See, you have to assume that I don't know what you're talking about at all, mostly because <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about at all. Okay. Okay. When you say dog training, this is not like me taking my dog out and saying, be a good boy and make a duty on the, the lawn. You, you mean dog training, like hunting dogs? Yes, yes. So they're very, very good for uh, people to start off training their dogs for hunting because they're a much smaller bird and younger dogs are able to handle them a lot better. Okay, so what does that look like training a dog? Somebody buys a quail from you and then how do they use that in the training? So people can come to us and they can purchase quail pheasants, partridge, whatever they really wish to and whatever is the most suitable for their dog to train with. And then they'll um, go out and uh, place the birds and go for a small hunt and hunt the birds and then the dogs retrieve them. And it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of work, but very rewarding too. So the main market for your birds would be release into the wild for hunting? Uh, yes. So our three main markets, uh, the biggest market is definitely hunting. Uh, the second biggest would probably be for release into natural habitat for restocking purposes, not necessarily hunting. And then the other one would be the restaurant meat trade. How many total birds do you have? This year, we'll probably hatch out over... Oh, 150,000 birds in total between the different species. Wow, that's a lot of feathers. So you're you're a breeding operation. You don't raise anything to market weight that you sell for meat. Yes, we do. So we have it all on our farm. We have our own breeding flocks. We have our own CFIA inspected hatchery. We have our own growing facilities. So we try, we really try to keep our farm as um, much of a closed flock as possible. But uh, sometimes, you know, you just kind of have to bite the bullet and purchase hatching eggs in order to fill orders. So explain the, the breeding side of it. You just take a bunch of hens. Do you call them hens? Yes. And then you put roosters? Yes. So we do a ratio of... 10 hens to one rooster. All of our breeding stock are actually housed outdoors in flight pens under net. There's some years when we will start them off inside first under light, but they just do so much better outside, you know, even when it is minus 30 out and uh, they still, they thrive. They're, they're wild birds, right? Right. So they're not the really domesticated that, I, that much. No, no, they really aren't. So it's quite nice to be able to say to our customers when they say, oh, well, if I release these birds on Manitoulin Island, will they survive and will they reproduce? And I say, well, all of our birds are outside here and they're surviving and they're reproducing. So, I mean, absolutely, you'll you'll have great luck. You know, we have minus 30 weather too, so you'll be okay. Right. So then is is the rooster in with the hens all the time and then they lay eggs every couple of days or how, do, how many eggs would they lay? 
So we hope for about five eggs a week out of them. Um, the males are in with them all the time. Uh, we don't do any artificial insemination. Doesn't seem like there's much benefit to it. So it's just kind of extra work on our part. And then does do all 10 of those hens lay an average of five a week and are they all fertile? For the most part, yes. That's so a good because, rooster. of course, they're outside in the pens, I can't say, you know, they're, they're not in cages per se. So I can't say, oh, well, you've only laid three eggs this week. You know, I'm not going to keep you around like some of the other poultry industry does. So, but in general, you'd be um, looking for 50 eggs from 10 hens in a week. Yes, pretty well. You would be able to confirm which ones are fertile before they hatch? Uh, no, that's generally a kind of, uh, we wash the eggs, we check them for cracks and, you know, we just hope for the best chances are they're going to be fertile. I think our fertility right now is running probably about 98%, something like that. So pretty happy with it. And that's for the first start of the year. Is it possible that you would have a dud rooster in with the hens and then all of a sudden you get a bunch of eggs that just aren't fertile or or do you have a way of checking that? No, because what we do is we try and have about a hundred hens per pen. So, I mean, there's, you know, 10 roosters in that pen as well. So pretty well, everybody gets bred enough. It's not an issue that way. Do the roosters ever fight over the hens? Oh yeah. So this time of year, um, especially during breeding season, it can get it can get pretty ugly, but uh, I mean, and even the hens half the time this time of year, whether it's, you know, nice enough to wear running shoes out in the pens or not, you're wearing rubber boots because the hens will attack you for taking the eggs. They're, they get very, very protective. It's pretty interesting, but they definitely will fight with each other really for no reason. I mean, there's lots of hens to go around, but they still fight anyways. So safe to say that you're not afraid of birds then? Definitely not afraid of birds. No, probably because your uncle, when you were a little kid, didn't cut the head off a chicken and throw it at you and laugh because you ran away screaming. (laughs) No. No. Well, I feel bad for anybody that that did happen to. That was me, Sarah, just so you know. That's what happened to me. (laughs) It's tragic. Some people get traumatized easy. I I can see how that would be traumatizing. Right. Yeah. And just carry those things with you. All right. (laughs) This is going good. So you collect the eggs from these groups every day? Yes. And then what do you do with them? In nature, the the hens would sit on them, right? Yes. So we uh, bring them in, um, we wash them, and from there, um, they'll sit overnight and dry. And then the next day, I will check them for cracks and kind of uh, grade them, check them for imperfections, things like that. Then put them into the racks and into the cooler the egg cooler they go until I'm ready to set a hatch. Sorry, into the cooler? Yes, the egg cooler. Why are you cooling the So eggs? we cool the eggs. It's not really extremely cool, but you take the temperature down, keep the humidity up, just essentially to slow cell division in the embryo so that it'll be a more uniform hatch date. Okay, so you can control how long until these embryos turn into chicks and then hatch. Uh, You have some control over it. Um, I mean, the longer you keep them, there's optimum times. It's different for turkeys. It's different for pheasants. It's different for quail. You know, the optimum time that you can keep and hold eggs in the cooler until setting um, before you start to lose hatchability. And setting is when you would put them in the incubator and turn the heat up? Yes. 
what temperature is ideal for incubating eggs? Temperature um, for incubating eggs is around 99 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. Ballpark, how long are they in that incubator? They are in that incubator for 21 days. And then at day 21, we move them over into the hatchers, which is about 104 degrees, but extremely, extremely high humidity to finish rotting the shell for those couple days. It's too bad somebody didn't come to your farm and make a video and put it on TV. Well, if you Google how it's made pheasant breeding, then you'll find that. I think that's really cool that you were on How's It Made, because How's It Made is one of my favorite shows, because I'm a teenage boy. It was a very last minute. They had a cancellation and they were in the area, so they called us, I think, two days before they showed up at the farm, and uh, we did a video. It was it was really interesting. A lot of work, but it's really nice to be able to say to people, especially when you have a biosecure facility, go on YouTube, and there's a five-minute clip of essentially the gist of what goes on on our farm. Yeah, that's very cool. And when the episode went to air, did the narrator mispronounce any words? Because it drives me crazy when she does that. (laughs) There was a few things, but, you know, we spent a lot of hours going over the script, though. It wasn't too bad. Okay, so then once they start hatching, you'll have groups in the incubator that hatch all at the same time. Are you hatching eggs every day? Uh, No, we only hatch twice a week. That seems to work really well for us to hatch twice a week. So I hatch Monday nights and Thursday nights, and then that way I'm able to take the chicks to Pearson, and they can go wherever they need to the next morning. Tonight's hatch is going to New Brunswick, I believe. So you know when you put the eggs in the incubator, you'll have a schedule kind of of what customers need what birds, and you ship them always at day old? It's so easy to ship at day old uh, just because, you know, you have a window of time in there, about 60-ish hours that the chicks are still able to live off the yolk inside them. So you don't have to transport them with feed or water. 60 Um, hours. 60 hours is... Yeah, yeah. Somewhere around in there. I try and do it in a lot less than that, but... I didn't know that. Animal rights people probably don't know that either. No, no. So, I mean, people get really stressed about it, but that is the opportune time. I mean, it's easier than me driving out west or something like that with six-week-old birds um, and putting them under that kind of stress then is where day-old chicks, you can put a box of 100 on a plane and they're shipped and gone and happy as can be. So it works really, really well. Do you also ship fertilized eggs? We do ship a lot of hatching eggs. A little bit stressful and difficult, but uh, still, it works really a lot better than shipping older birds. So why is that stressful to ship hatching eggs? What's the process? Oh, it's just, you know, you can put as many labels on the box as you want to, you know, this way up and things like that. But sometimes I think that maybe gets lost in translation. I'm not sure. So, you know, those few hours from when you drop your eggs or your chicks off at the airport until you get confirmation from that customer saying everything arrived really good. I mean, it's a, it's kind of stressful. You're basically, you know, giving your livestock over to somebody and saying, please be careful. Right. It's a little worrisome. You're shipping these, what, UPS? Is that how these get to their uh, customers? Air freight cargo. So. so you have to drive them to the airport. Yes. And then 
you don't just walk in to Pearson and put them on the baggage carousel. No, I we go back into uh, the cargo terminals, which is really, really strange. And uh, you fill out all your paperwork and drop them off. And we're very lucky with uh, the one company that we use a lot. I'm very... I became to know a lot of the ones that work at the cargo desk really well, um, you know, on a first name basis. So it's like, oh, Sarah's here with chicks or eggs and she has eight different waybills in her hand. Okay, you know, we need this person, this person, this person here so we can get the chicks into a heated room as soon as possible um, and then get the eggs over to x-ray and things like that. So it's good now that we have that line of communication built, but I've definitely had to uh, had to really stand up for my chicks at times and say, no, you know, they're not going to sit in an airport for 12 hours on a connection flight. I'm pretty sure you can take them, let's say, across Halifax Airport in a five-minute trip. So it's it's interesting. Right. You've got the epitome of a perishable product. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's nothing worse than when your customer calls and it's only ever happened to me once and the chicks were left in a draft at a connecting airport that a customer called me and said, you know, half the chicks in the box didn't make it. Unfortunately, that would that would be the reality of what you're doing, you know, shipping live animals. You would run into that from time to time, unfortunately. Unfortunately, you do. So, I mean, you take every precaution possible. You know, especially if you have an issue at one airport, if you have to ship through that airport again for some reason, you call them up and say, you know, this happened to me last night, last time. If it happens again, you know, you're, you're really going to see me get grumpies. Right. You have to be the aggressive businesswoman then. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't like to be that aggressive businesswoman, but every now and then when she shows up, it's kind of handy because stuff gets done. <laughs> well, and you, and you really are, you're really on your own for the most part. You don't have exactly a conventional family situation no no we don't so not a conventional family situation and we also um don't have necessarily like a commodity representation either we're really on our own so it's a lot of work but i know that the job's getting done and how did you end up sort of doing this on your own so i still do farm with my mother but she also works off farm but uh before it was my father and myself and uh, he passed away at the start of December suddenly. So this year has been a very different year for me. Um, he always took care of all of the incubation part. That was his deal. And now I've had to learn that really quickly, kind of did a crash course. And uh, it's a very different year. But, you know, you just you have no choice but to keep moving ahead and uh, filling orders and going from there. And Sarah, I can relate a little bit. My sister passed away suddenly in July a year ago. Do you ever stop and catch yourself thinking that you would have liked to ask some of the questions had you had a chance? There's still times when I'm in the hatchery and I think, oh, I wish I could just call him and ask, you know, what I do to this thermometer to make it you know, like it's just just things like that. There's so many different things or where did we bury that tile and why did we do that? And things, just things like that. You know, there's so many unanswered questions that you just kind of have to figure them out on your own trial and error. Right. And had you known, you would have tried to have a plan in place, but life doesn't always give us that opportunity. Absolutely. It doesn't give you that opportunity. So, I mean, you just do the best that you can and uh, 
I know that there's nothing more that I could do that would make my father prouder than to keep continuing farming. So that's absolutely what I'm going to do. And I can hear that, Sarah, and I'm sure that he would be really proud of you because it sounds like you're doing a spectacular job. And you've got Scarlett as well, and, and you don't have any help with her. I don't know very many. I know a couple, but not very many, you know, single moms, 25 years old, farming without their father. Um, yeah, it's definitely weird. And a lot of people, you know, look at you and they say, oh, you can't do that. Like, that, that doesn't work. But, you know, I don't sleep a lot and I work as much as I can and get stuff done. And, you know, I'd rather do that now, work myself crazy now when she's so young. And then when she is, you know, five, six, I am able to take time off and go and go to dance recitals and go to swim meets or whatever, you know, whether she starts playing lacrosse and it's lacrosse tournaments, that's totally fine you know, work really hard now so that I am able to do that kind of stuff in the future. I'm curious, Sarah, do you find people in the industry, people you have to deal with, do they treat you differently because you're a woman? Or do you find that they, if they don't know if they, do they ask for your dad or do they ask for your husband? Do you think there's any of those stereotypes that you have to deal with? Oh, absolutely. I uh, priced out something at the farm show this year and uh, I was told i The person gave me their card and they said to me, you can uh, have your husband or your father, whoever you farm with, give us a call. So I quickly said to him, my father just passed away and I'm no longer with my husband. So uh, it was a very awkward conversation, (laughs) but I think people just assume so quickly that, you know, you see a woman with a child and there's people that think, oh, they're so busy being a mother, they can't farm. Well, no. Like, you can do everything. It's a lot of work, a lot of work, but you can do it. And you don't have to have it all together every day. No, definitely I do not have it all together every day. That is for sure. But, I mean, you put a solid effort in every day. You try your hardest. At the end of the day, you look and you say, well, this is, uh, this is what happened. And it could have been worse, but it wasn't. So that's, that's a success. And as she's growing up, your daughter's going to see you putting this effort in and eventually realize the sacrifices you've made and learn from you and develop that work ethic. And I think really appreciate that. That's all I can ask for. I mean, if I'm able to give my daughter the opportunity to farm in the future, then wonderful. But if she turns around and she says to me, you know, I want to be a neurosurgeon or something, then, you know, if you have to sell the farm to make those dreams for her come true. I mean, as long as she's worked really, really hard, then absolutely. Like, I farm for my family, and I make no bones about that, and I will do whatever I can to make farming a possibility for her future. Well, and as a parent of three mostly grown children at this point, Sarah, a neuro- neurosurgeon is, is a fine goal to shoot for, but you might want to have a plan B just in case. Oh, absolutely. She can do whatever she wants. (laughs) Is she into any extracurriculars at this point yet? How old? Two? She's two. So really her biggest thing is uh, she wants to go to the farm. She wants to uh, pick eggs and play with the turkeys, which she's at about eye level with. So it's a little concerning her lack of fear. She's a very bold, outgoing little girl. But, uh, oh, yeah, She, she loves being back at the farm, so... 
As for hobbies, yeah. No, as long as she's at the farm, she's happy. Okay, and, and so you're also the vice president of the Lambton Federation of Ag. Yes, absolutely. I was uh, kind of conned onto going onto the board a few years ago, and I didn't really know what all it would entail. I had just graduated college. I was just kind of starting out farming here at home, and uh, I had family that had been on the board previously, and I thought, you know what, this this will be good. And uh, it has been an amazing experience getting to deal with issues relating to farmers individually and then farmers in the county or in the province as a whole. I'm also on the uh, policy advisory committee for the OFA, so really, really interesting. OFA is Ontario Federation of Agriculture. What are some of the initiatives that you're working on at the county level and, and at the provincial level? So one thing that we've been working on at the county level, and OFA has been doing a lot of work on it too, they're partnering with the counties very, very well on this, is we're seeing a increase in the MPAC assessments and the mill rates for farmers, and essentially farmers' taxes are going to go up significantly over the next five years, very significantly. So in conjunction um, with the OFA and the LFA, went to county council and did a presentation. It was very interesting to hear back some of the feedback from that presentation. And uh, unfortunately, county just kind of decided to keep going ahead as suggested and not to freeze anything or uh, drop anything. So, um, but still the fact that they're aware that we don't like this, you know, you have to make sure that your voice is heard in the first place, because then if all of a sudden down the road you put up a stink about something, they'll say, oh, well, where were you three months ago or five months ago or something like that? So it's good to get out and do that now. Exactly. Just because as a farm community, the politicians aren't listening doesn't mean that we shouldn't speak up for ourselves. Absolutely. So it's been a, it's been a very good experience to be involved with the Federation a lot of young farmers, I think, shy away from it. They're scared of the political side of things or the policy side of things. But it really helps you understand so much more of what's going on and gets you out to meet people. And it's I feel that having a very diverse board is a very good thing also. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And, and so because you are the, from the social media generation, you have recently just launched a Snapchat campaign. I have. I look at a lot of people in agriculture and I see what they're doing on social media and it really kind of inspired me and I thought, oh, you know what? I can do this. I can do this because I mean, if farmers aren't telling their story, then who is telling the story? So I look at people, there's some amazing people on Twitter, amazing people on Facebook, but Uh, For me, Snapchat is kind of my go-to social media that I really like. So I look at what people like Sandy Brock have done and Amanda Broadhagen, and there's many others. But just the fact that, uh, you know, it really shows farmers in their daily lives out on the farm working. This is what we do. And in their social and home lives as well, which I think is important. We do leave the farm every now and then, and, you know, it's good for people to see that we're normal people like we like to go for wine tastings we like to go out for dinner just like everybody else i'm really glad that you did that because i've been following along with your snaps and they're really interesting and entertaining so i appreciate you putting yourself out there and letting people get a bit of a glimpse into what you do 
And I appreciate you taking the time and chatting with us. I've really enjoyed it and I've learned some things that I didn't know before. I think your dad would be really proud of what you're doing and it sounds like you're passionate about farming and carrying on that tradition in your family. So thanks for chatting with us. Excellent. Thank you so much. Check out Sarah's Snapchat, Upland Sarah. Look her up on Twitter. This has been the Ontario AdCast. Please go back to Twitter. Give us a retweet. Go to iTunes. And if you can figure it out, give us a rating there. It helps us grow the audience. And don't forget to check out the Farm and Rural Ag Network for all the best agricultural podcasts. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.